Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. You know, recent episodes of this podcast have focused on exploring the particularities of real places in our world. Whether we were uncovering the nature of Mexico City, or revealing our unexpressed thoughts and emotions as we shuttle our bodies through subway systems, or when understanding the unique perspective behind curating an antiques and haunted curiosity shop, our attention has really been on actual locations lately. Well, this week, it's time to give props to a different set of places. It's time to explore the nature of fictional and fantasy places, whether in literature or while engaging in role-playing games. This is why Lucien Brown is here today. Lucien has two BAs from the University of British Columbia, one in Asian studies and one in religious studies. But, perhaps as important for our purposes, Lucien was also the president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Society at UBC for three years. During our initial email exchanges discussing what we might talk about today, she described herself as, quote, a huge linguistics, folklore, and mythology nerd, and I have strong opinions on J.R.R. Tolkien, end quote. Oh, and she put a trademark on strong opinions. Lucien, thank you for spending some time with me today. My pleasure. Let's get going by, by sharing a little background about you with listeners. Tell us a little bit about who you are and why you wanted to chat about the nature of fictional places, fantasy gaming, mythology, and, and folklore. Well, I guess it starts with the amount of saturation that fictional stories sort of had in my childhood. Tolkien, for an example, my grandmother was buried with her copy of The Hobbit in a thermos of coffee because she was a good Norwegian, and if there's a bodily resurrection, you're going to want a cup of coffee. Growing up, my dad read The Hobbit to me. My little sister and I would run around in the woods with our raincoats on, with our just the hoods being dwarves. Like most bookie-type nerds, you had your fictional worlds, and they were so vibrant and so real that that's an attraction that you never really lose. I mean, especially talking about the greater themes of your podcast, fictional worlds really give us that ability to take a completely different setting than the one that a human being is normally in. And by moving that human being to that strange place, you really get a chance to see the contrast between how they interact in a world that is totally unfamiliar and then what the core of human responses are, what it is to be human. It becomes far more starkly visible when you have those strange surroundings. Yeah, and you're, you know, I guess I haven't thought about this. You know, I have a philosophy background and knowing ourselves and knowing the, the contents of our mind and our personality and our character is important to philosophy. But it's, as you mentioned, when you are role-playing or engaging in a fictional world, your reaction to a world that is strange and different than what you're used to day to day is a type of self-knowledge, I suppose. Yet it's also a bit of an escape because you know no fictional character can ever be as complex as any real human being. The best written fictional character is necessarily 2D. And that's probably why they're so compelling, because for once, you actually get to truly see as close to the totality of another being as you can, because you're inside their head. You know, you can know your mother your whole life, any human being, and you just don't get to be inside them. And there's something really satisfying about that. And you get that kind of level of connection, which is why they're so vivid to us, because we do, in fact, know them 
nearly all there is to know. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the, the fictional or mythological worlds or places or even characters that have made a significant impact on you? And how have they affected you? How have they changed your worldview or, or how you view yourself? I think Norse mythology is the easiest one to reach out and grab, possibly even less the mythology than the entire cultural world and setting of the ancient Norse. I think for Europe, the argument is generally made that the Icelandic sagas were the first as close to modern literature as we had. And it's in, it's in the style that's very modern feeling. These people are vividly alive and relatable in a way that like the grand chansons of chivalric France really aren't because these are these are people who are paragons, whereas the Icelandic sagas are filled with liars, cheats, assholes, people who occasionally get more zingy one-liners than you do in real life, but like it's relatable. Mm-hmm. And it's the con- the degree to which that was a world that's so completely different from ours and yet you can make those historical people so real. You know, it kind of reminds you of that asshole neighbor or your one friend who occasionally drops really good zinger into a si- into silence. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that as much in, you know, Greco-Roman mythology. So I'm not really familiar with this, but what I'm getting out of this is that whether it's the chanson in France and Greco-Roman mythology, there's something idiosyncratic and individualistic about Icelandic sagas. The characters are, are drawn with much more detail and individuality is that what yeah I'm interpreting yeah i think i mean it it would be simplistic to go directly to individualistic because our individualistic society versus the still inherently very collectivist society of that period you know but it's definitely closer it feels more like a modern tv show there's something nitty and gritty and kind of scrappy mm-hmm. about a lot of norse stuff it can be easy to forget that people in the past were just like us, they were, were human, and sometimes you can people will look back in the past and think people in the past were dumb. Mm-hmm. So it becomes easier to keep that in your mind at all times. When the greater part of Nell's saga, this great famous saga, is a courtroom drama, a very modern courtroom drama, only well, more bloody axes and swords involved eventually. But like, <laughs> it has that it has that appeal, which I think is kind of unique and. Western European literature. And for people who are not familiar with Norse mythology, what are some of the typical characters and locales that are characteristic of of that? Well, the one you probably know right out the gate is Thor, Mm. uh, famously played by Christopher Hemsworth. If you're all into men, you definitely remember that. Odin, the great death of the gods, twilight of the gods, Ragnarok, that apocalyptic end usually is pretty well known. Ride of the Valkyries... In the Hall of the Mountain King by Greek, I think these are all mm-hmm. probably. Cool. And what about locations? What are, what's the locale like in which these characters live? In my mind, I'm starting to think about mossy, green, cold, bleak, mm-hmm. gray locales. What kind of locales did they live in? It's funny you mentioned that because you think, I mean, we're in the Pacific Northwest, and you can copy paste that and get Norway, where you know what we have of the sagas are written by Icelanders, but they came from Norway. They had the great majestic fjords, these mountains that were carved by glaciers, just a world on an, a very epic scale. It looks like Skyrim if you played Skyrim. Mm. Just these soaring, soaring mountains and cliffs over deep blue water and pine trees. It's absolutely breathtaking. And you can see why the mythic imagination of the Norse looked at their own landscape and went, 
that checks out. Mm. That's definitely what we see. And that's why their version of hell was cold. And the version of fiery hell took a little while to catch on, actually, in Northern mm. Europe, because people thinking, eternal fire, you don't even have to put any fuel on? Gosh, that sounds nice. <laughs> you get to hear, again, you know, some poor bastard in his hut in the middle of Norwegian winter thinking, gosh, what would be nice? Feeling my toes again, that'd be nice. <laughs> and what makes a fictional world more compelling and memorable than others to you? What, are, what is it about characterization of a fictional world that, that really sticks in your bones and, and makes you think about that fictional place after you've heard descriptions of it? I think the greater challenge for fantasy and fictional places is to have points of reference that are real and relatable. And then the greater purpose of a fantasy story is then to take the familiar parts and go beyond that. Tolkien had an essay about fairy, which he envisioned as as this other world that was layered on top of our own, that was like ours but strange, Mm -hmm. and that where the character noticed that there was a green sun. And I think that's a good image for what you need in a fantasy setting or a fictional setting. You need it to be familiar, but then to know, okay, that's different. That's new. That's weird. Mm -hmm. And the degree to which you can make the aspects that are based in some way off of the real world compellingly real, like if it's sci-fi and it's hard sci-fi, you're doing your scientific research to, you know, basically not say this is a spaceship that moves on magic. You're Mm -hmm. trying to really go into the physics of it. The internal structure of the world is coherent Mm -hmm. and that allows you to introduce the fictional elements with greater efficacy yeah it's interesting when when i was in back in my days as a philosophy graduate student and i took philosophy of of literature fiction uh my professor always had a a favorite saying and i'm paraphrasing because i'm going to botch it up that something fictional is actually truthful Mm -hmm. and i think what you're getting at and if i'm interpreting correctly those fictional locations that have most resonance with people are close enough to what you're experiencing in day-to-day life that you can recognize some extension of your day-to-day life into that world. And I guess extension could, could happen in at least two ways. One is extends in such a way that you can see possibilities about how your world could be and move into the future. And then the second way is extended in such a way that you suddenly have more awareness and attention to the smaller details around you in the actual world and appreciate them more because you have read a fiction that has somehow added a layer of magic or magical thinking around those details. So it's either you're projecting a future state, a magical state, or really appreciating the current state you're in. But here I go rambling on yeah, <laughs> some no, thoughts it's that you're causing here. Kind of coming from what, like the Enlightenment, the version of the novel with this humanist notion that the novel should tell you something true about humanity. I mean, it doesn't have to be a grand big story. There's a historical novel series uh, by Patrick O'Brien called The Aubriad Series. The Master and Commander movie with Russell Crowe was based off it. And I think that's like the novel par excellence where you have this unfamiliar environment of a wooden ship and all these people in it. All of these people living close together, going through stress, going through war. And it allows you to sort of see these characters and these stresses and their joys and all of these things lived so vividly because they're in wartime, but it these people then become intensely, intensely compelling. So I think the duty of any fiction, and this is where I am not, clearly not a postmodernist in any iteration of modern with however many post, 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 post. Mm-hmm. I really think that 
the essential appeal of why humans tell each other stories is to hear about some of the basic things we like, the basic tropes, sort of map these basic common themes that are in human stories that we just like telling, like the Cinderella story. That's mm-hmm. when we're most, most people know that they're iterations of that across the globe. You know, it's highly unlikely that it's because of some great monomyth, fight me, Joseph Campbell, uh, came from one source and we all, it was passed down. And I think it's far more likely that it's, you know, who who is probably powerless? An orphan. Who's more powerless? A female orphan whose father is dead. And, you know, she's good and virtuous and hardworking, but her life is awful. And these are all things we can relate to. Mm-hmm. What are some of those themes or motive, motifs, if you will, that that we can identify that recur? You mentioned the the powerless underdog in the midst of more ostensibly powerful people surmounting the odds and getting their one-uppings on that. Another one I'm thinking about, because I, I was a child of Star Wars, was the overbearing, powerful father overshadowing the sun and the sun eventually fighting back and there's that what are some of those motifs if you will that are common out there in in the literature you study and which ones are most compelling to you i'll take you at a slight sidebar there it's funny you you mentioned star wars because joseph campbell who wrote the hero with a thousand faces i don't know if people are generally familiar with him is i believe a theorist of mythology and folklore who kind of like freud whether with some kind of sexy theories that are fun to play with, but aren't exactly, uh, they don't really stand up to much serious scholastic scrutiny, Mm -hmm. but was trying to find, you know, the hero's journey, this almost universal arc that he hoped to find in cultures around the world. And it is in fact true that you can find some pretty basic recurring themes of, you know, the hero leaves home, goes on a journey, finds friends, beats bad guy, that kind of thing. You know, given how human existence is, those are common themes. It's not particularly uh, surprising, but it is nuts to try to do as as he did and sort of imply that this is necessarily some quasi-mystical thing. But Star Wars, Lucas was very influenced by this book. You know, he sat down to write the story of Star Wars. He was drawing from that directly and, you know, picking the things that Campbell picked out is, okay, then you find your your yogi, your guru, your, you know, your Jedi master, and mm-hmm. they train you, and then you can return and fight your father, Freud, Freud, and triumph over evil. Like, these pseudo-scholarship feeds into the pop culture, which feeds back on itself, It is and just creates this whole thing, and at the end of the day, really enjoy our the classics of fantasy, because Star Wars isn't actually sci-fi. It's just, it's it's a fantasy story. So I'm curious, what what's your view? I mean, if, if some of these um, thematic storylines out there in a very schematic way exist, are those somehow essential to humanity? There's something about just the way humans are, where those stories and that mythology can't help but emerge because of human nature? Or is it more contingent? Is it just an accident of historical circumstance that allows these types of stories to just repeat themselves over and over again? Is it an essentialist part of us or is it a accidental or is it a false dichotomy? I think it's got to be a little bit of both. And at the basic level, it probably comes out of human interactions, I think, create these. 
any other notion of, you know, sort of something perhaps essential in human nature. I mean, that would come out of probably the functions of being social animals and just being wired to mostly try to work together. And then when that doesn't totally happen, we get grumpy and cross about it. Like, I absolutely in no way would want to say that these are written in a quasi quasi mystical way in human consciousness. I mean, they've done the studies on very, very young children where infants where they see like some little puppet creatures and one helps the other like get up a steep hill and the babies kind of go, oh, nice. And you see one where like a little puppet creature is trying to get up a hill and the other puppet creature stops it and the babies are just, oh, sad. It's about that level where to survive as a species, we've been, you know, good social animals. And I think that's basically where that real deep, deep, deep in- instinct comes from. You know what awful thought you just made me have? The Teletubbies and how they might <laughs> reflect <laughs> fundamental needs of storytelling of our childhood. But anyway. Well, now I'm thinking about Teletubbies. Thank you for that gift. <laughs> You're welcome. Let's move on on that one. I want to. I guess in a way change the subject, but it's going to be related and you're probably going to fold this back into itself. I would like to cover how worlds and places are created and perceived when you're playing games, particularly role-playing games. During our initial conversations, you mentioned that you were in the midst of a a Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 campaign for the past three years. Yep. Where, I'm going to quote you again, quote, The dungeon master let us go truly crazy with world building in our own corners of the sandbox. End quote. Could you describe what kind of worlds you guys are co-creating and inhabiting and how does that co-creation work in the context of of that kind of complicit fictional role playing? Hmm. Like uh, just about the creation in general or Well, I'll give you a story. Back when I played D and D, these things were not called adventures, they were called modules. (laughs) And one of the modules that we played for ages was the Isle of Dread, one of the earliest expert level modules and it was an island and we decided to divide it in four and we each held a kingdom in the island and created a whole political ecosystem and a whole series of dramas and you know geopolitical events based on that and we spent months dealing with that we never bought another module we just decided to stay in this module live within it and and learn more about ourselves (laughs) as friends and characters by doing that so i'm curious about you said you've been doing this for the past three years. Yeah, <laughs> probably a, more now. Yeah. You, what does world building look like? Talk a little bit about the dynamic, about if there's a dungeon master that technically is supposed to be the keeper of of the parameters of what is permissible in a world, um, how do how do you co-create in the middle of that? Yeah, you know, one of my friends came has sort of built up her corner to have this lovely, horrifying, creepy forest that's filled with all of these horrifying monsters just low-key Lovecraftian woods. Mm. And you can kind of then get a sense of their relationship with the natural world and maybe why, you know, a given person would be less concerned with, say, necromancy because their experience of nature is horrifying. And so, you know, something out of the natural order of bringing dead people back to life that may not bother them as much. And then when you sort of know that about another person, you can then sort of react accordingly and there may be conflict there may be sympathy and just sort of you have that as a set thing that happens when you encounter these things in the world i don't don't think i've expressed that well no i think it must be crucial to find uh when it comes to dungeons and dragons and other role-playing games 
where there's interaction between people, to find people who have a narrative creativity and psychological depth to make the game interesting because there are a couple things that I would expect would be necessary to, to play the game well. It would be somebody who knows in order to have a character that is rich and that really interacts with other folks and really adds value, I have to have a set of virtues and vices that create in me dispositions to react and behave in certain situations in certain ways, but at the same time, I don't want to be too predictable. I want to have some predictability so that people around me can rely or, or guess how I will react in a yeah, specific so you place. You don't just situation. randomly do stuff to make everyone's... Right. No one likes that guy. Yeah, so you need that... that consistency in that understand psychological acuity if you will to understand what a character in the pure sense of the word means it's a set of virtues and vices that have dispositions to behave in certain ways but at the same time to make a role-playing game interesting you need a little uh, randomness or a little randomness that is within the realm of possibility in the world you're creating and then the dungeon master i mean huge responsibility to not just be a an architect or a engineer that describes the physics of the world around you only they need a certain narrative power to to give you that level of excitement detail and even mystery at certain cases so the fact that you've had a crew for three years hopefully they're they all exhibit <laughs> they're these pretty virtues amazing you know? and rdm is well he's he's the god of the setting for sure he is and he's a cruel and capricious god who puts a lot of doors in front of our party actually none of us are very strong uh, the thing with DMs is talking about telling stories and playing stories. They're writing a story where they have no control over the characters. The players are inevitably cats resisting being herded. And the ability to improvise incredible... I mean, I'm really just talking about RDM. The ability to improvise incredible, compelling speeches. These scenes right off the top of his head. That's, you know, the storyteller's gift. And... How powerful does suspension of disbelief have to be to filter out the real world when playing a game like this? I mean, it's such a, I mean, I haven't done this in, in years, but to, you know, sit in a living room with a pizza delivery person coming did you in know? <laughs> and, and having to really think of these uh, highly imaginative worlds and person to person interactions and nooks and crannies of a fictional world while, you know, there's a Samsung television and an Xbox sitting in the corner I mean, how do you keep that, that suspension of disbelief or what's that psychological state like when you're in the middle of that realm? I think it's got to be about the same level as anytime you're playing a, a video game and not just playing it to like match the buttons. Like when people get involved in the political mm -hmm. things or ha start having strong opinions and the kind that you'll argue with your friends over, like, what did you do? And I think the suspension of disbelief is helped by sort of having that, like having something in common with the character you're playing. From there, you can sort of, like you have something in common that you understand about them, and then from that, you can layer on all the different things, mm -hmm. and you can kind of work on what is a deviation from that. I think for the suspension of disbelief, it's made easier when you do have those real world familiar things. I think I was talking earlier about you make say the physics like our physics in this fantasy world you build. Your touch point in reality guides you. And helps sort of give you a little boost so you can then leap into the full fantasy. Yeah, it's really paradoxical, isn't it, now that you bring it up um, in order to have, if I'm interpreting correctly, I'm going to repeat it, in order to really be involved in a fictional world or in a role-playing state of mind, it's helpful if there are 
as you put it, touchstones that are close to your real world because they're almost like stepping stones allowing you to go into an interpretive state, into a narrative state. Oh, I understand this phenomenon because it's very close to what I experience on a day-to-day basis. And if you have that stepping stone, it allows you to go from actual to fictional through that stepping stone and then extend because uh, it's not too far flung. Um, To your point about hard versus soft sci-fi, I think some of the most effective sci-fi people argue is the one that is just one or two generations ahead of where we are now so people can see how close we are to going into that dystopian or utopian state, depending on what kind of sci-fi you're reading. So the closer it is to our concentric circle of reality in the middle, the easier, arguably, it is to start slipping into that state of of disbelief and, and yeah. fictional state. It's interesting. It's a paradox in a yeah. way. And you yeah. can, and I think you can make, like, it's when you draw on your folklore or something where when you have consumed as many stories as the average human being has, I mean, we have access to more just stories now than at any time in the world. Mm. But when you have that, you can add on any number of things. You said you don't have much experience or haven't engaged in that kind of suspension of disbelief recently. Mm-hmm. I, few, like a few years back, was hanging with a group of friends and we were walking through the park. And for whatever reason, we decided to just, let's go play make-believe. Let's do it like we were little kids. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if you remember, you could spend a lot of that playing make-believe saying to your friend, this is a staff, mm-hmm. but pretend it's got a skull on it and it shoots lasers. Like you do establish these things, mm-hmm. you know, amongst each other. And it was fun because as adults who'd now consumed tons of media, probably written a bit, we honestly started playing like kids. It was, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, all you have to do is just be with some adults where you know that no one's going to put his point the finger and laugh. Like, if, we all, if you're all on board, mm-hmm. you can totally do this. We don't leave that behind, apparently. Yeah, and but, it's, it's dangerous because, as you say, there's saturation of stories all over the place. The media, how easy it is to access so many stories out there from different cultures and worlds. One interpretation, the sad interpretation, is that we're so saturated by them that it's mental furniture in our brains. And if we try to be imaginative, well, we've already seen a story like that before, so we're just remixing what has already been there. Whereas the way you're describing it, it doesn't have to be just a remix of what's already been there. It's just additional springboard to try to find new stories and new new make-believe. You mentioned earlier that I haven't done this in a while. Now that I think about it, I think the last time I was seriously embedded in, in something like this was when World of Warcraft came out in 2004, and I was a night elf druid. And I remember solo campaigning for two, three months, three, four nights a week. Let's not get too much in detail. And the sound design, the visual design, just completely immersive. And that's the last time I was in a state of flow, if you will, mm-hmm. where time passes, you feel the challenge meets your skill level and continually just lets you grow. I would you know, travel to other cities to go to conferences, and I would try to find an internet cafe in order to continue the growth of my night elf druid. But then something happened. Once you reach a certain level, the highest level of your development, in order to progress, you need to get better equipment suddenly. And what happened is I found a guild. Unbeknownst to me, this was a guild of mostly graduate students at MIT. And when we had to go on big campaigns, what this amounted to was Go to this shared drive. Here's a spreadsheet. Druids, 
here are all the cycles of the healing and the damage that you are supposed to inflict upon this monster in order to maximally be efficient in your healing and then your, you know, killing. Warlocks, here's your cycle. Priests, here's your cycle. So what the MIT graduates did is basically figure out what is the ballet steps that everybody should undertake in order to kill the dragon and everybody gets the loot. So before we went on this mission, we would all look at the spreadsheet and understand mechanically what we were supposed to do with our keyboard, which for the first one or two times we did this was massively satisfying because we got the loot and didn't yeah. die. But after a while, the immersiveness and you know that solo questing that got me there, it's, it just dissipated and it became a very pragmatic <laughs> mechanical yeah, thing. With video, <laughs> with video games, for some people why they're playing and you know i've been saying well this makes a good dnd character it make i should clarify i like playing a very story based character and making you know putting in all these things which i'm obviously biased and interest biased towards interested in so for me my optimal dnd character is one where i feel like i've got i know the culture i know how she'd feel if she i i know all of that for some people they want to min max they want to play the most mechanically efficient character these aren't in any way necessarily contradictory. You can do both, but it can sort of kill your sense of the vividness, perhaps, of the world. Though I think games like Warcraft and like when you start playing say, Skyrim or something or Dragon Age, where there's the doing tasks, I believe, like why people get addicted to video games and because mm -hmm. our lovely little ape brains, we love... Push the button, get the banana. Yeah, <laughs> we love that banana. And we have a story that goes along with the banana, and that's... Like, you're getting a banana and chocolate, and these are two things. And, oh, man, you're getting them. But, like, when you start getting kind of sick of the banana, and I know for me, like, that point in Skyrim where you're just, oh, my gosh, I can just, I'm just good at everything, and I'm wandering around, and the game doesn't react to how much I'm clearly a freaking demigod. This incredible armor, you just shouted at a dragon, and it dropped out of the sky, and you're going, ooh, immersion just got a little shaky. Suspension of disbelief there it goes so what about in the uh three years that you've had with that particular <laughs> three and a half adventure anything particularly uh memorable <laughs> that comes to mind from those and well, no pressure because maybe they might be listening about uh this. i mean the one that really really <laughs> leaps to mind is um our rogue after three years of like real three years apparently had been plotting to betray the party all along before we ever started playing and that has given us all trust issues, probably in real life, mm. that it was a three-year-long con where before we ever started playing, you sat down with the DM, okay, I'd like to betray the party. And because, you know, the best laid plans of DMs and men, uh, astray, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that particular betrayal thing didn't happen until like three years later. And it was great because we got, you know, all these very, very well-built characters all get to have their reaction to a friend betraying them and his motivations and why and the how it impacted the world and didn't have a constant dialogue with another player, but with the DM about what he was doing. Like he was writing a his character's journal over the past three years, which we got to have after he did the betrayal and we're all going through it. Wow. It's like, oh, you son of a... Even then, you son of a bitch. So... But it was without a doubt one of the coolest, one of, one of the coolest things mm -hmm. that has happened in the game. Possibly the coolest. 
And be- before we wind down, this actually raises an interesting question. I want to go back to the nature of make-believe and suspension of disbelief. <laughs> How much do we want to stab our friend? <laughs> it, it, yeah, in a way. When you guys are playing like that, I mean, there's a state that you're in when, when you're in an adventure where you are thinking about your character and the virtues and vices of your character and how your character interacts. And, and you have a certain, for lack of a better word, responsibility to the, the nature of that character. When the game is over, do you guys talk at a meta, meta level, an analytic level about what you're experiencing in the game? And if so, doesn't that cannibalize some of the enjoyment of being in the moment in the game? Or do you try not to analyze the game too much? It, I think it depends. Um, they're real emotions. Like, I love horror. And I think horror is fun because you get to feel real fear and then the release of that fear. But you get to have the real emotion, which is kind of fun and cathartic. And, you know, we, we will absolutely have the emotions and like playing a role and if you ever do theater and oh, you're you're not completely checked out of that emotion that you're feeling it's weird it's yeah. not like you've shifted the channel all the way back to empirical schematic day-to-day yeah. reality you're at this right. liminal if you will level yeah between. well that's yeah. definitely you get used to putting yourself into this role and you imagine the stimuli and the emotion is real We've also been making alcohol for a really long time. Like, mm. so we like to actually be out of the normal set of our own minds fairly often if if the historical record is anything to go by. Like at the drop of a hat, we w- will bust out the booze, sing some songs, turn on the TV. Okay, get the Bart. He's going to tell us another story about King Arthur. Hell yeah, love that guy. Trying to suspend disbelief and become engaged in these stories, if that sort of escape... if all the reasons that people may consume these, if that wasn't part of our programming, we could just sit there on Wikipedia and read the summary page. You're like, yeah, save them cable bills. It's interesting. I read this book when I was doing philosophy of film back in the day around genre expectations and our neurobiology around it. Huh. And what this person found through research was that as we were exposed to genres, you know, horror, mystery, epics, and so on, there are actually neural patterns, and if you want to go metaphorical on it, our brain is actually grooved. There are grooves in our brain that these genre expectations have set in us. And when we go to a typical genre movie, the stimulus we're getting is like water going through these grooves, and there's a certain sense of satisfaction that we feel when this genre expectation is met yeah. in our brain. There's actually get-the-banana satisfaction. Yeah. We like and our patterns. We do. And the best avant-garde art or development actually skips those grooves. Mm-hmm. You think you're going to hit the genre expectation, and quite physically, the electrical patterns in your brain are expecting it, and then they don't get fed. It jumps. It skips. Flip it and reverse it. Right. And that actually causes in some people pain, <laughs> uh, a pain of interpretation, a pain of confusion, and some people are just so wired that they try to rewire it back into the genre expectations yeah. and insist. Others are okay with the avant-garde, with that evolution, if you will, and want to explore that. And the more you explore it and experience it and think about it, sadly, a new groove forms in your brain. And what used to be avant-garde now becomes part of the genre expectation. So it's a very mechanistic, physicalist explanation mm. of what happens when when you hear stories, and to your point, if it's the same story in a different setting, some people are okay with that because they're lulled into expectation yeah. or nodding. Others are not satisfied with that. They want to 
a groove skipping experience of an yeah. avant-garde motion. Well, it kind of depends yeah. on what you're what you're shopping for. You know, it's like sometimes you want to have the same thing, and sometimes you want a very different experience. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you know you sit down and you watch your frankly formulaic thing, and you're satisfied. Yeah, that's why it's so important to get a. Uh, Friends and colleagues, if you're going to play make-believe, you're going to do cosplay or, or a fantasy game that that are okay with allowing their brains to skip that groove yeah. and be okay with the avant-garde. Because if you're surrounded with folks who just want the same pattern over and over again, yeah, sure, eventually it, it'll yeah, well, that's it'll just become stagnant. The great challenge, though, is definitely coming up with something new. That's why you know we get stuck with all these grim, dark adaptations of the stories that we know. But then, but then again. You know, when you have these sort of formulas, when well done, sometimes it can be very much like a sonnet or another form of poetry where you have some strict rules. But there is a world of difference between my writing a sonnet in you know, iambic pentameter with the right rhyme scheme and a Shakespearean sonnet. All the boxes were ticked, but the artistry and you know, the renown, the reason you haven't heard of my sonnets, <laughs> because they, you know, they didn't. Be, be trash if I was foolish enough to engage in such an endeavor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think there's a lot to be said for sticking to that. You can break some incredible boundaries and yet be in, inside them. So, you know, those grooves, I think you can keep them and still do some pretty impressive stuff with them. Like, I'm not sure if that's subversion yet. I think mm-hmm. that's still, like, you can see all those little... Yeah, you're right. Boxes. I was going to say, oh, it's a subversion of genre. But as soon as I thought that, I thought, no, that's, that doesn't quite grab the concept it's almost like a in you know darwinian natural selection it just takes a small mutation to do something significant and sometimes a small mutation of genre expectation can do something significant thank you so much for being on the show i mean we we covered so much from norse mythology what does it mean to to engage in a, a state of disbelief and how to move from fictional states to real states and a, a liminal state in between? Talked about J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, so much we've covered. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, thank you for uh, putting up with perhaps this, the jack of all trades, master of none level of death we got to in some cases. But <laughs> yeah, well, What alignment is that character in? <laughs> so thank you, Lucien Brown. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcasts, videos, and written content all live. On that site, you will find an article where you can find more information about this episode along with a bunch of relevant links. And, of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Just take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. <laughs>